It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science— that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Kennan. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We have such a fun show today. John Allen, who's an NBC political reporter and author of Lucky, joins us to talk about what's going on in politics. And then we'll talk to Daniel Goldman, who is the lawyer who led the first impeachment of President Donald Trump. And he's going to talk to us about the legal jeopardy Trump is in now that Alan Weisselberg has been charged and the Supreme Court's decision on voting rights. But first, we're joined by comedian Andy Levy again. Hello, Andy Levy. Hello, Molly Jongfast. How are you? Welcome back to the new abnormal. This is becoming a thing. It is a little bit, yeah. Don't tell anyone, though. It's a thing. I won't. We'll keep it our secret. Okay, cool. So I feel like today was a victory for passive aggressive hairstylists everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> is this about Kevin McCarthy? Yes, it is about Kevin McCarthy. No, it's about, I don't know if you know who her father is. He <laughs> was a senator. Okay. Liz Cheney? Do you know is this Liz Cheney? Yes, Liz Cheney. It's about Liz Cheney. No. You monster. We are talking about Meghan McCain. She is leaving The View, and all it took was a mohawk. (laughs) Why was the mohawk braided into her hair like that? (laughs) Why wouldn't it be? I don't buy your premise that there's a problem here. I'm just saying she was on the show. She had, like, three weeks of insane hairstyles, <laughs> and now she's resigning. You connect the dots. Like, you say this is a victory for passive-aggressive hairstylists, but I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a loss for someone who just had the ability to just use their creativity to its utmost. Listen, <laughs> the thing I think about Meghan McCain is— You didn't need to like her, right? The idea was she was a conservative firebrand who said crazy stuff a la Laura Ingram, but on a mainstream news network, right? I mean, isn't that sort of, wasn't that sort of the brand she was trying to build? I want to say it's odd because she used to be a fairly moderate Republican, but... Right, which is dead. That's just not odd anymore, I guess. I don't know who her constituency is now because she was never pro-Trump. So I can't imagine that like the hardcore pro-Trumpers like her. And she's moved away from what was like a sort of vaguely generic moderate Republican to someone who says, you know, crazy stuff on TV. So who's her constituency now? Is it the crazy Republicans who are not pro-Trump? Because there aren't many of those. The fundamental problem, which is we see the far-right media falling into again and again and again, right? Which is Fox News' problem, 
if you want to appeal to Trump voters, you must do certain things. And the main one is have complete alliance to this person who says insane stuff that you have to then pretend is true. So, like, you know, there's been so much talk about the big lie and how if you're in this right wing media, you have to support the big lie and all these senators and congressmen and pretty much every Republican supports a big lie. But they, this is just one of many big lies throughout the Trump administration. Right. I mean, Mexico's going to pay for the wall. And, you know, the, I mean, it, this whole exercise is one big lie. Right. And Trump, you know, is the healthiest person ever to serve as president, <laughs> despite the fact that nobody, you know, that he's obese. And so I just want to make sure I'm, I'm correct on this. So you're saying this is all Megan McCain's fault. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> OK. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, as someone who has really suckled from the teat of nepotism myself, <laughs> right? And not, unfortunately, not as successfully as Megan McCain, because I'm not on television. I have to say that you don't have to always tell people because that's why you're there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they know. Now, Molly, is this you sort of maybe offering yourself up as a replacement? Yeah. That <laughs> makes a lot of yeah. Because, can, yeah. Can we get a hashtag because, trending? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? It's good to replace your Republican with a liberal. That will just balance stuff out. Hashtag Molly's view. I'm looking forward to this tomorrow (laughs) But yes So yes, I'm offering myself up to the view I'm sure they would love to have me I have very Republican views About many different things And if I'm your Republican, you're in a lot of trouble But yes Can your hair do the vaguely Princess Leia thing? Yes, I have the hair For the crazy hairstyles And I also think I could pull them off with like I would be fine putting crazy shit in my hair and uh-huh. looking ridiculous. Ah, right, you're halfway there. So, so, so <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to guide this conversation. Because what? Un- Jesse? Unfortunately, no. We, we, no. We, we do have to discuss some other terrible people. But wait, can I just read one, just very quickly, can I read a quote from, from Megan on the last step of The View that she did? She, she said, if five men were doing what we do every day, I believe we would have we would have a Pulitzer Prize at this point. That's right. A Pulitzer Prize. The famous Pulitzer Prize for daytime television. I I think that one deserves a Pulitzer for breaking my brain. Yeah, that breaks the internet. (laughs) I'd like to move on to some other terrible people in the news. So Bill Cosby is now set to be free. How are you guys feeling about this? I would say this, which is that everything sucks for women and that it was a fucking day of misogyny. Now, he didn't get released because the courts found him not guilty. He got right. released because there was prosecutorial misconduct. And the courts are set up that way. Of course, the prosecutor was the guy who was Trump's lawyer. Impeachment defense lawyer. For the lawyer. second impeachment. Right. So it is really like everything bad comes from Trump, at least right now. But... I would say, um, no, it's fucked up. And it's like heartbreaking. And I actually tweeted about this last night, which is that, you know, I have a daughter and I have a mother. I don't know if you know who she is. (laughs) Her name is John McCain. (laughs) And she was a big feminist and she worked very hard by, you know, as a war prisoner in in (laughs) Vietnam. No, I'm just kidding. She wasn't. She was a feminist and they worked really hard in her generation, which was this baby boomer generation, 
to try to get women the right to choose. And they thought they had it settled. And there are a lot of things that are happening now, which are things that they thought they had settled in the 70s that are coming back in this Republican Party. And I actually wrote about it today for Vogue, which is that they're they're really coming after birth control as a sort of as a they kind, there's a whole kind of game going in the Republican Party now that birth control is some kind of that birth control is some kind of abortion. Right, that certain kinds of birth control are abortion, which is preposterous. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a loss for women. You know, every time someone like this goes free, you know, it's a it's saying you your experience doesn't matter. First of all, I agree with everything you just said. We all know what Bill Cosby did, and we all know what an insanely horrible person he is. This does not change that at all. Even though it obviously it, it meant that he got to go in front of cameras yesterday and say that. You know, he had been vindicated or I don't even remember whatever language he used that made it sound like the court had ruled him innocent or not guilty, which is obviously a huge crock of shit. But so basically, if I understand this correctly, the prosecutor, the DA at the time, yeah, this idiot Trump lawyer now, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is he basically thought, okay, we don't have, we're not going to get him in a... In a criminal case, because he, he'll plead the fifth. It'll be a he said and many she's said. If you are being told that no charges will be filed against you criminally, and then that affects things, you know, that that affects things in a, in a civil suit. And then suddenly a prosecutor says, OK, hey, well, that that thing we said, oh, that's that's not true. We're, we're going to now charge you criminally. If you forget that it's Bill Cosby involved in this, that's kind of scary. The reality is affluent, famous men tend not to ever get in trouble for anything they do. I mean, and it's the exception, not the norm, right? Like Harvey Weinstein is in jail and I actually can't even believe it because he's like the only one. No, uh, that is that, uh, 100% true. Uh, a poor and or, and or non-famous person would never have had this happen to them. That is uh, 100% true. This deal had been made, which wasn't even a deal. It wasn't even like they sat down with Cosby and made a deal. The The DA just out of nowhere said, we're not going to charge him criminally. Yeah. So it's not even like he reached a, it, it's not even like one of these obnoxious plea deals where it's like, you know, you set someone horrible free to maybe get someone a little more horrible or whatever. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure the Pennsylvania Supreme Court made the wrong decision here. I think they ruled sort of the way they had to rule. No, I think they had to. But I think you shouldn't get off on technicalities. It was a good day for bad dead people. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> because Don Rumsfeld, Rummy, as he was called to his friends, 88 years old, died. He's gone. He can't start any more wars. <laughs> Somebody, uh, there was a tweet. Someone said uh, he's now trying to convince Satan to invade heaven. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> he signed his own torture memos. I mean, that's something. But I, I, it was something I read yesterday that really stuck with me is that he fired the Pentagon pastry chef because he thought it was a waste of money. So, you know. That is the worst thing I've ever heard. Honestly, like the one good thing is that they had a pastry chef. Like that, you make the whole place a pastry, you know, make the place a pastry store. Like fuck the Pentagon. Why don't they make Let's the whole make Pentagon out of pastry? Seriously, like 
Pastry never killed any. Well, I mean, relatively speaking. I mean, I, I was would swim say, in a sea of pastry. But I just love that, like, this guy is, you know, one of the, and yeah, I, I agree. Like, he gets, you know, we seem to, we seem to have decided that Iraq was his war. And that's probably a little unfair to him because it was a lot of other people's war, too. But well, we're saving our ire for some of the other absolutely. ones coming down the pike. But, you know, he was, you know, definitely one of the architects of that war. But, but then I see these articles. It's like, but on the other hand, he uh, he didn't like waste, and he fired the pastry chef. And I was like, oh. <laughs> well, he wrote in the torture memos that he thought they should be able to torture more days of the week. Like, why limit it to four? By not giving them pastries. That's right. It, ultimately, this is all about how he never should have fired that pastry chef, or also <laughs> the torture. The thing I got reminded of that had somehow slipped my mind was if anybody's read Frederick Douglass's horrible account of when he was broken by this slave breaker, the place was called Fort Misery. Donald Rumsfeld liked torture so much, he bought that place and vacationed there. Like, what in the hell? What in the hell type of fucking freak are you that reads this book that is like the worst account of a person being broken? It's like, I wonder if it's available on Zillow. (laughs) Oh, so he's out there doing this and I'm the one in therapy? (laughs) you know the other thing though that i really think we should hate donald rumsfeld for popularizer of the standing desk really yeah that that he was in one of the torture memos he said <laughs> i stand I, from my standing yeah desk? i stand for four to five day, hours a day at my standing standing desk why can't the uh the these detainees stand longer <laughs> It's God. like, and who had heard of a standing desk before that? So I blame the fact <laughs> that my employees sometimes ask for these fucking things. I blame it on Donald Rumsfeld because I have to then accommodate them. I don't think that's Donald Rumsfeld's worst crime. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's the that show. all the dead Iraqis. But, Molly, I'm a job creator. I get some privileges in this economy. I get, I, I, I get to, I, I get to expend these things. Come on, don't take this away from me. Yes. So anyway, Don Rumsfeld is dead, but Henry Kissinger lives on another day. I will say I was pretty like happy to see how much people have come around to this was a bad man. We should shame the fuck out of him. And we should admit that this war was a problem. Like I know all of us lived through the gaslighting of the Iraq war. It was kind of great to see that everybody unanimously was like, fuck this person for what they did. Yeah. I, I mean, this, I have to say that there, there was a lot less of the, the body's not even cold yet. Yes. Yeah. Stuff yeah, that you usually get, you know, when people tweet nasty things about a shithead who dies. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true. Which makes me, I, look, I, I, and I, Molly, you sort of alluded to this. All of this is a warm up to Kissinger. We all right. know that, right? That's right. Kissinger's the big one. Twitter is going to be lit on that day. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if we need John Podhoritz to come back so that he can be offended when people say mean things about Kissinger. Like I used to, I'll I'll be honest. How dare you? I used to be one of, and I still, look, I I didn't tweet anything about Rumsfeld yesterday, but whatever. Like I had nothing to add to the conversation. He sucked and he's dead and uh, whatever. But I used to be one of the people who was like, ah, you know, wait 
wait a day or two after someone dies, which I'm I'm not that person anymore. I've grown. <laughs> but but even then, in my head, I was like, except Kissinger. That's the exception. <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Yeah, Limbaugh too. I mean, I, you know, when we just got to talk about that, uh, his uh, grave now becomes a gender-neutral bathroom. Um, I was really excited that we were all <laughs> in, into that on the first day. <laughs> I mean, I think it is interesting. You do see that there are people who really are just, I mean, beyond the pale. Like, you know, Rush Limbaugh, the way he targeted women, the way he, you know, ruined the discourse. I mean, he is a bad fucking dude. Like, there's no world in which you can defend that. And he made millions of dollars. I mean, it's not like he was, you know, some kind of public servant. Yeah, he was not uh, Mother Teresa. I think no. it's fair to say. Though Mother Teresa was actually problematic. I know, I know. <laughs> I forgot we canceled Mother Teresa. You know, everybody... <laughs> She's sort of on a hiatus. That was such a, uh, you know, you'd always go to the, like, you know, Mother Teresa and Gandhi, such good people when we were younger, and now, you know, the, cancel, so cancel right. culture <laughs> comes for everyone, even the saints. <laughs> right. But at least with those people, they had good qualities. Yes, that's right. Like Gandhi was thin. <laughs> right. Sorry. No, like Mother Teresa did stuff for poor people and no, yeah, right. but but like but Kissinger, like no. There's there's no, there's there's no well, there's no well but for Kissinger. Wait, does Megan McCain end up on the view? I mean, she ends up I'm sorry, she ends up on the Real Housewives. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say yeah, no, she was on The View. She ends up on The Real Housewives Discuss. Wait, wait, that means that the Federalist guy, who's now the Fox News guy, will be one of The Real Housewives. That That is not going to be good. I feel like I could see this happening. You could see you could see him like, oh, honey, what are you doing today? He's like, ah, just a little bit of misinformation about the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo goes Fox. I could see it. <laughs> Bravo goes all right. I'm going to go ahead and say that's not happening. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb. Let's talk about the January 6th commission. It's all happening. Nancy Pelosi has appointed Liz Cheney as a member of the commission. What are you guys feeling here? What's what's going to happen? How are you, you seeing this shake out? I know you love Liz Cheney, so let's oh, yeah, start yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the resistance, Liz Cheney. Which one this of us is, are you talking to then? Yeah. So this is with all, all the Liz Cheney fan club here. Yeah. That's right. It's a y'all. You know, is Dick no longer, does he no longer get the angry death tweets? No, I think he still does. I'm going to play, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to play it safe and say, I think he still does. Okay. I think that's a good call. Well, the first thing is I, I think I need to publicly apologize to Nancy Pelosi because I actually, and I think I said it on the, on an earlier episode of this podcast, I did not think she would actually do this. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. You know, I I didn't think she had it in her to actually do it. I thought it was going to be one of those things where, you know, she ends up saying, well, we're focused on 2022 now or whatever. Wow, that was a great right, right, Nancy right. Pelosi impression. It was pretty good. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good. But I have to say, and, I, you know, I also said on this podcast, let's not put Liz Cheney on Mount Rushmore just yet. And I obviously I stand by that. But yeah, listen, I do give her credit. She's been... You know, she's been remarkably consistent on this and she has not backed down. And that's in, you know, I, I still don't like her. And I, I think this is now maybe it's great that there's one thing we agree on. But in the world we live in, not backing down 
from actual principles is it's is kind of amazing. Unheard of. It's sad that it's amazing, but it's amazing. Yeah. I think this is she's the only she and Kinzinger, Kinzinger are the yeah. only Republicans who really put themselves out there. Yeah. What I love is that Kinzinger is just a the, the brand that he said, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Today. He said, okay. who, gives, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> really like that he's branding himself as the like, ah, who gives a fuck to a type of Republican. Yeah. I mean, and he's. Good for him. Right. I mean, it's great. Yeah, it, it's good. Good that to kick uh, Sand in Kevin McCarthy's face because truly, have we ever seen somebody more incompetent at this job? I feel like he's really done an amazing job coming from behind in the biggest asshole competition. Yeah, because like yeah. you know, right. McConnell was clearly ahead of him for a very long time. Yeah. And there were so many others also. And he was, you know, McCarthy was trailing badly. And I think a lot of people had counted him out, including me, and had sort of, you know, turned off the game. And and then you come back in in later, you know, in the second half, and suddenly there's McCarthy, I think, maybe even pulling ahead. Yeah, he's a real fucking asshole. Yeah. Let me tell you. He's a Republican from California. And I'm actually a little surprised because, you know, before everything happened with, with the Liz Cheney Today, you know, on Thursday, when it first was announced that there was going to be this committee and that there were going to be, you know, five of them were going to be chosen with input from the Republicans or whatever. I assumed McCarthy would would appoint people or try to appoint people like Nunes or whatever and just turn this turn the whole thing into the biggest clown show possible. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, obviously he's gone the other way and threatened uh, to strip anyone who takes a seat on this from their other committee seats, which I don't even think he can do. Which we're going to learn the nuances of in the interview coming up in just one minute. Oh, okay. Minute. Oh, excellent. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I would, like to, I would like to see Kinzinger on this committee. I mean, I hope they find a way to, to put him on it. I'd love to see one or two Democratic really partisan clowns. Like, I think that could help the brand. Molly is a secret donor to the Alan Grayson come back to Congress fund. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is their people are insane and they constantly try to do these false equivalents like with Ilhan Omar, right? Yeah, yeah, Who right. like grew up as an immigrant right. in an a, immigrant a refugee. camp. And, right. right, a refugee. I'm sorry, grew up as a refugee in a refugee camp and who is like this very impressive person whose daughter goes to Barnard and is very brainy and smart. And they're saying like, she's just like, like you Marjorie know, Taylor Green. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because they're both women. Yeah. The literal, like yeah. the worst possible fucking analogy in the world. So today the Trump organization has got its first kind of legal challenges and the Trump and the CFO of the Trump organization, a man called Alan Weisselberg, who's real fucking sketchy. Let me tell you, who's worked for Trump, worked for his dad, has self-surrendered and is being prosecuted on tax charges and a lot of stuff, nothing like super huge. But, right. you know, the kind of stuff that happens when you run a, cr- a cash right. business that is constantly equated with the mafia. <laughs> but my question to you is this. In the media today, I read pieces, pieces or piece today that said that uh, – Trump was emboldened by this. Do you think Trump is emboldened by this? I don't think he's not emboldened by this. Interesting. <laughs> Discuss. There was a quote from uh, Maggie Haberman saying that, you know, uh, that if Trump is dealing with the reality of a trial in like 18 months, it's hard to see him how he runs for president. And it's like, really? Yeah. 
Really? Mm. It's hard to see? After everything he's done, you, you can't see that? <laughs> Wasn't Trump University on trial when he was running the first time? So along those same lines, it's just reached the point where, you know, anything you do can be used by Trump and people like him as just evidence of the conspiracy against them. Right. That is true. That is certainly true. I, I don't know why this is any different, assuming nothing changes because he is not personally, uh, you know, part of these indictments. So un- unless this leads, and as you said, this is all for very like unsexy things, which is fine. It's, it's you know, it's the untouchables. It's the Al Capone tax evasion. Right, blah, blah, it's blah. taxes, yeah. Yeah. Unless something comes out as a result of these indictments, unless something is, is uncovered or, you know, or somebody flips or whatever, and suddenly it's, it, this gets to Trump personally, I, I completely understand why he would feel emboldened by this because it gives him another thing to go out there and, and yell about the lying media and, and, and that shit gets eaten up by Republicans right now. So, so why shouldn't he be emboldened by this as long as it's not going to touch him personally? Right. And I guess that is the question. Back to this for a second. So this NSA thing, Tucker Carlson says he's being spied on by the NSA. The NSA then, again, not the most believable, you know, wh- yeah. why would they tell the truth about anything? But they do put out a tweet saying they're not following Tucker Carlson around. Okay, take of that what you will. The one thing that does seem to sort of shore up the possibility that Tucker Carlson is just making this up is that the Fox network itself has no interest in this story, does not cover it at all, right? (laughs) Which makes you think that maybe, in fact, they know something we don't. You will realize now that Kevin McCarthy says it needs to be investigated. Yeah. (laughs) Is the NSA spying on Tucker? Well, and I thought, Molly, I, I know that uh, you, when you saw that yesterday, you, you tweeted that Tucker Carlson is the leader of the Republican Party, which honestly, in some ways, is at most a slight exaggeration. Right. What he really is the leader of is, remember back in like the, the 1850s, we had the Know Nothing Party? And now we just have, now we have the No Wrong Things Party. Mm. Like everything they know is wrong. And Tucker is definitely the de facto, if not de jure leader of that party. I mean, the guy just now gets his platform every day and gets up every night and and says incredibly wrong things, like things that have no basis in reality. And, you know, his viewers nod and, and eat it up and Kevin McCarthy uh, nods and eats it up. And it's it's just, it's absolutely incredible. And I'm still trying to figure out how a fairly standard conservative, which is what Tucker has been throughout most of his career. But, and now he's Glenn Beck without the chalkboards. And I just like, I can't, (laughs) I don't know when that happened. Like I get why it happened because it's happened to most of them, if not all of them, but it's just, it's just fucking amazing to look at. But it does come back to what we were talking about before with, I don't know if you know who her father is. She had that same thing, which is there is no place for sane people in the Republican Party, right? There's no place for it, right? Those people are, you know, they're Liz Cheney, they're Adam Kinzinger, they're like five people. They're they're Evan McMullen, right? They are on the sidelines. The, The Republican media, you know, Fox, OAN, and Newsmax, there's only room for Cray. So that's where we're at. It's also just crazy because you think of how many years we were lectured by conservatives that liberals don't look at reality. And now it's deny, deny slavery ever happened, deny January 6th ever happened, 
make things out of whole cloth every fucking day. Yeah. And call the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a pig. Yeah, that <laughs> yes, was amazing, yes, yes, Millie. Yes. And we still have a Matt Gates being oh, yes. on, you know, grilling people in the FBI while being under FBI investigation. It's a, it's a wonderful world. Did you know every single week the new Abnormal does a special bonus episode that's available to Beast Inside members, which is the Daily Beast membership program? This week, we're lucky enough to be joined by David Shore, who's the head of data science at Open Labs. And he's going to talk to us about what he saw in the New York mayoral race and what it makes him think about the Democrats' chances in the midterms. To hear this along with all of our past bonus episodes, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience, and it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries, and it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash the new abnormal. John Allen is a political reporter for NBC News, as well as the author of Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. So I think we should start by talking about one Kevin McCarthy, the congressional minority leader who threatened today to strip any Republican who deigned to serve on Nancy Pelosi's January 6th a select commission of their committee assignments. John Allen, can he do that? No, not by himself. There is a problem with this threat, which is that the minority typically is allowed by the majority to pick its committee assignments for its members. However, 
To add somebody to a committee or to remove somebody from a committee, it requires a full vote of the House, which means that in order for Kevin McCarthy to make good on this threat, Nancy Pelosi would have to allow a House floor vote on whether to take Liz Cheney off of her committees as punishment for joining Pelosi's select committee committee. on January 6th. It seems unlikely that he would do that. It seems very unlikely, and it would be certainly high theater, um, but I can't see the Democrat, the majority Democrats voting to punish Liz Cheney for investigating the riot on the Capitol. Seems like they would rather celebrate her for that than punish her for it. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. There are no words. So here's the question I want you, the answer to is, did McCarthy do this because he doesn't know the rules or did he make this threat because he doesn't care about the rules and he just wants to scare people like Louis Gohmert who don't know the rules? Well, and he particularly said this, uh, according to the reporting, he said this in a meeting with freshman Republicans. So presumably most of them are not as up on the rules, but they have been in Congress and watched this happen before because the House stripped Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments Um, And so they were, you know, they should have been able to follow that procedure, which was the Democrats put up a resolution and the Democrats, the majority in the House, uh, outnumbered the Republicans and voted to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments through this formal process against the objections of all of the Republicans who voted in unison to keep her on her committees. Um, So, you know, it shouldn't be shocking to them that this is the process. But I think McCarthy was looking for some way to try to, you know, to scare members away from uh, taking an appointment like this. And Congressman Adam Kinzinger from Illinois was asked about this threat today, and he said, who gives a shit? (laughs) Good for him, man. I think Liz Cheney actually accepting an appointment to this committee is uh, a demonstration that she is not someone who who gives a shit. Gives a flip, yeah. Yeah. There are literally only two Republicans who are willing to really say fuck you to McCarthy. Everyone else is still kind of on the QT. Do you think that McCarthy's power is diminished or do you think it's just that it's only two so they're outliers? I think this isn't really about Kevin McCarthy and that it's much more about Donald Trump and what he means in primaries. I don't think there's a single Republican who is afraid of the awesome wrath of Kevin McCarthy. I think what they're afraid of is that Donald Trump will, you know, pick them out of the crowd and say that they're the person that Republican voters should turn against. So um, McCarthy's power is in, in a way sort of devolved from Trump's power. He's an intermediary. Um, who's trying to balance these these wings of his party. And one wing is, you know, much larger. If you can imagine, um, you know, a bird with one, you know, airplane-sized wing and one flea-sized wing. Uh, the Republicans right now are the Trump, you know, airplane-sized wing and then the flea-sized wing of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and a couple of others who have, um, you know, stood up to, to the Trump faction. Yeah, the commission goes, you have Liz Cheney on it. And then five Democrats. In theory, there would be other Republicans. It's possible that they don't name anybody. It's possible that people refuse assignments, or it's possible that it's, you know, the the Jim Jordan defense. What's the Jim Jordan defense? Well, meaning that you stick Jim Jordan and some of your other, you know, partisan warriors on that committee to try to to Gates. ends. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that Gates would be a candidate for it right now. So it doesn't seem like Matt Gates, but so that it could go either way there. 
Um, I, I mean, I don't think Gates will end up being on the on the committee. I mean, I think what you'll end up seeing is a relatively serious investigation that will be sort of permanently discredited by Trump and his backers based on the fact that it is a, um, you know, a partisan committee, one that was set up uh, when they couldn't get uh, an independent commission through Congress. So, um, you know, the, whatever they come out with, the, you know, the Republican side will, will say that this is biased and shameful and terrible, um, no matter how well it's conducted. But, uh, you know, but people will make their own judgments about that. And so I think, you know, it's incumbent on the Democrats who are conducting this to do it in a serious fashion. So I know I don't know if you you saw this investigation in the UK, right, where Greenpeace posed as a headhunter and interviewed two of the biggest Exxon lobbyists and they complained. I mean, I thought it was like basically an ad for the Biden administration in some ways. (laughs) So, well, they complained bitterly about, you know, Biden's larger infrastructure bill had all this climate stuff in it and. They complained bitterly about how this would fuck up Exxon and cost them a billion dollars. And so and then they talked about all the senators that they have in their pocket, like Shelley Moore Capito. And also they talked about how every week they call the kingmaker uh, Joe Manchin. So I'm curious to know. Look, we all know this is what happens behind the scenes, but this strikes me as a pretty unusual video. It is an unusual video. You don't usually get to see that quite like that behind the scenes, right? But I also think that the bottom line result of it is that ExxonMobil is going to make billions of dollars as people go to pump their cars full of gas. I mean, like I was trying to think about this earlier and talking through this with uh, someone I know who's in public relations, and and you know the, we sort of came to the to that conclusion that like it's bad PR for Exxon Mobil, but what's the you know what votes does it change in Congress? I don't think it changes any votes in Congress, and more to the point, it's not like I mean maybe you could see you know some new tax uh, on oil companies added in a pay for and reconciliation if that bill gets anywhere, but if you look at the sort of broader debate on transportation and infrastructure right now and and the family infrastructure that Biden's trying to do. I mean, it is now in a place where it's a fight among Democrats. You know, McConnell has played this really well, getting, you know, because there are two trains, what McConnell's done is allowed the Republicans to negotiate on one train. They come to an agreement with the White House. And then on the other train, it's just Democrats negotiating against themselves. And the White House is in the position of the president. You know, I guess he reversed his position or walked back from it, but originally sort of saying the one thing he couldn't say, which is, I'm not going to do the one without the other. I don't think that was helpful to him, which is why he turned around (laughs) and reversed it. But ultimately, the Republicans have a position now where they're like, we'll do this thing. Um, And the Democrats are like, well, we need to get to both of these things. And that discussion is entirely among Democrats, and it is getting more and more bitter, not less and less bitter. It seems like Mitch McConnell is really kind of, he's so good at playing it that he's made it, that he's made this deal, moderate Democrats versus more progressive Democrats, as opposed to the fact that there are not, there are not 10 sane Republicans who will pass anything. Right. I mean, the way that I would put it is that all of the Republicans that tentatively agreed to this deal 
have a lot of wiggle room to get out of it if they want to. It's what Democrats accuse Republicans of doing, which is, you know, sort of a fake negotiation that's intended to delay, not to actually come to an agreement. And then, you know, they get to announce an agreement. Then, you know, within a few hours, the president has said something that gives them a a ton of room if they want to, to turn around and, and reject the deal that they'd already made. It's like McConnell's already won. I mean, it's somebody who's looking at a chessboard and knows knows where all the pieces move. And, you know, you would think that, that the president, Biden and Schumer and Pelosi would have as good of a feel for the chessboard. But, you know, but they clearly don't. But it's also worth remembering that the minority leader in the Senate has a lot of influence over what goes and what doesn't. Except when Chuck Schumer was the minority leader in the Senate, that wasn't true. I mean, I think it was a little different. I mean, the things that we remember about the Trump administration were things that they did do in reconciliation, right? So the big tax cut for reconciliation and the judges. And the Arctic drilling. Yes. Which came in reconciliation. Right. Um, and, And the judges, right? The Supreme Court judges, which are, you know, no longer subject to filibuster. Right. But in terms of like policy things that President Trump would have wanted to do, I mean, there were things he wasn't able to, like he would have thrown, you know, untold billions at, at building a wall if he could have, right? Right. Congress said you can't do that. And then he reprogrammed money to start doing it. But it was not done in the way he would have liked. Yeah. And he said last night on Sean Hannity that he thought the wall should have been painted. <laughs> it should have been painted. I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I was told, I seem to remember being told that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. And the painting. And the painting, obviously. I mean, look, if you're going to build a big, beautiful wall, you might as well cover it in in good paint. It just strikes me as extremely odd that Democrats can't kind of get past McConnell on this. So, John Allen, today I was watching a press conference with DeSantis and sitting next to Biden doing a press conference on this atrocity that happened at Sunnyside, Florida. I'm curious to know, there uh, there was some reporting that I read this morning that said that Trump wants to do a rally this weekend in Florida and DeSantis has like begged him not to because of this enormous humanitarian catastrophe that has happened in Florida, in Miami, which is this building that collapsed and there are 150 plus people missing. So I'm curious to know, this seems like these two men are heading for a collision course. DeSantis is campaigning for president in 2024. Yeah. And so is Donald Trump. So, I mean, the short the short answer is yes, they are on a collision course. Um, this isn't the first time DeSantis has tried to get Trump not to come to Florida. Uh, he did that, you know, the Tulsa rally that Trump did in uh, 2020, the sort of, you know, the super spreader event, as it was termed by many. It was uh, originally Trump had wanted to do an event in Florida, do his first rally out of COVID, or it was in the middle of COVID, but Trump wanted to suggest that COVID was over. Uh, He wanted to do that first rally in Florida, and DeSantis basically told him, don't come. And then also the Republican National Convention was supposed to be in Florida, and DeSantis told him, don't come. So (laughs) um, DeSantis is, you know, I mean, I think what we've seen from Ron DeSantis is that he has both a feel for, um, you know, the populist Trump wing of the party and like what those voters want um, and is also uh, afraid of the political damage Trump can do to him and to the party by being deeply undisciplined and doing kind of weird things like come to Florida to hold a political rally in the middle of a tragedy. I mean, they need to basically get along 
Right. I don't know that they need to get along. I mean, they could end up running against each other. Um, or If Trump turns on DeSantis, then DeSantis is done, right? It's it's certainly a lot harder for DeSantis if Trump, Trump turns on him. But, you know, DeSantis is also done a pretty good job of, of cutting a political profile for himself. It'd be interesting to see. I think he might withstand Trump's fury better than than a lot of other Republicans. And interestingly, I mean, you know, if you're a governor of a state and the president of the other party comes in, that can go poorly or it can go well. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, for DeSantis, you know, tragedy creates some some opportunity in terms of just looking like a responsible governing party in a time of crisis. You know, it doesn't appear that he told Biden not to come. Fascinating and also totally I mean, it, we're in weird, weird times. Thank you so much, John Allen, for joining us. Molly John Fest, I have a great time every time on the new <laughs> normal abnormal. Daniel Goldman is the former lead counsel of the House impeachment inquiry into former President Donald J. Trump's first impeachment. Welcome to the new abnormal, Daniel Goldman. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast and honored to uh, finally get to join you. Oh, well, we're so psyched. We couldn't have you for a long time because you were. What was your official title in the first impeachment? Uh, we sort of made it up because I was the director of investigations for the House Intelligence Committee. I think lead counsel for the impeachment inquiry is where we landed. So you did this first impeachment You've seen now you've lived through watching the second impeachment and now we're back sort of litigating the Trump presidency with the January 6th commission. Can you talk to me about are there ways in which this commission can do things that impeachment wasn't able to? Because it is sort of the same kind of idea of Congress running a narrative. Well, that is true. I mean, Congress is doing an investigation. I think there's a, a critical difference, and everyone needs to remember this, is the impeachment inquiry was very clearly targeted at Donald Trump's conduct uh, regarding Ukraine. The January 6th Select Committee is really focusing on a fact-finding mission to determine who organized it, uh, what the root causes were, and whether there was any influence or behind-the-scenes organization or assistance from anyone in the White House, uh, anyone associated with Donald Trump, such as someone like Rudy Giuliani or any members of Congress. It's less that Donald Trump is the target of this investigation and far more that it really is and it may be the the only sort of definitive investigation about what happened on January 6th, both in terms of the insurrection, but also in terms of the breach of the Capitol and the, the failure to secure the Capitol and what intelligence failures there were, not dissimilar to 9-11. Do you think that Democrats have, I mean, it feels like there is not a lot of bipartisan interest in knowing the truth. I mean, are you seeing that? Right. I agree with that. And I think, you know, you, we can speculate as to why that is. There's a political reason, which is harping on the January 6th insurrection and Donald Trump's role in fomenting it, as well as other conservative Republican congressmen like Mo Brooks 
that's just not helpful to the Republican Party uh, with and whatever narrative that they're messaging they're trying to put forward in order to take back the House in particular in 2022. There also may be personal reasons for that, which is for one, I assume Republican members of Congress or senators do not want to testify before a select committee. And the second and perhaps more significant is, and we don't know this, there are rumors about it, but maybe some of these members of Congress played a role in organizing and inciting the insurrection. And so they definitely don't want an investigation if that's the case. We don't know that yet. That's pure speculation. But there's been enough chatter about it that I'm sure that is something that the select committee will look into. It feels to a lot of us on the left that Trump has gotten away with it. We know that Weisselberg surrendered this morning. Do you think Trump world is being held accountable in any way? And do things give you hope here? I think we have to separate the two things. The January 6th is one thing, and certainly Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election and the the insurrection that followed his activities in trying to convince Brad Raffensperger and Georgia to find the votes necessary. That's subject of another investigation down in Atlanta. The Manhattan DA's investigation has nothing to do with January 6th. This really has to do, in fact, with nothing related to Donald Trump's presidency. This has to do with the Trump organization, the company that uh, bears his name and that he ran for decades and still had a vested interest in while he was president. But it's very important to draw that distinction. And as a former prosecutor and as a strong believer in the rule of law, I think it's essential to keep politics and emotion out of whatever comes from the Manhattan DA's office. A prosecution is not a vehicle to, quote, hold someone accountable for political actions or other criminal conduct if it's separate and apart from what you're investigating. And so I think that we have a tendency, and many have a tendency, to conflate the two, that we need to hold Donald Trump accountable for four years of hell by... Uh, by imprisoning him for stuff that's unrelated to that. And I think it's really, really important that for those of us who believe in the rule of law and believe that Donald Trump stomped all over the rule of law for four years, that we cannot now say, oh, well, we're going to do the same thing. If you believe in the rule of law, you got to believe in it on both both sides. Right. But I do think the... The question of like what is happening, what happened with the way that the Trump, uh, the Trump organization was run. I mean, you've heard from every practically everyone in the world that there was sketchy stuff. I mean, Jennifer Weiselberg has talked about you know her husband bringing the cash from the skating rink. I mean, this it's. I mean, I've never ever heard of a business run like this before. I mean, I have in like The Sopranos. So it does strike me as this is hardly like a partisan witch hunt. Oh, I I don't think it is, and certainly it didn't start to be that. I I just hear a lot of calls of we need to lock him up, and that rubs me the wrong way. But separate and apart from that, if there is a, there certainly is a legitimate basis to investigate the Trump organization because of all of those 
little tidbits that you hear about. And because, you know, look at what happened with the Trump Foundation. Look at what happened with Trump University. There are so many things. Yeah. I mean, well, there are so many things that have borne out to be fraudulent in nature that you, you, as a prosecutor, you know, it's not a big leap to think that, well, if he's going to run his foundation and his university as a fraudulent enterprise, then certainly he would run the Trump organization. And by all accounts, you know, he's not someone who cares about the laws and he will do whatever it is that's in his best interest. He doesn't care about contracts. He doesn't care about paying his vendors. So someone like that is very prone to cutting corners and perhaps illegally. Right. You can't go after him for things that didn't happen, but you should go after him for things that did happen. There's another problem here, Molly, which is you know, the criminal process is not necessarily designed as the ultimate truth-finding mission. And I say that because, yes, you need to try to get to the truth and you need justice when there, when you do get to the truth. But remember, there are very strict evidentiary rules. There are very specific legal requirements to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt and the elements of a crime. And so when I was a prosecutor, there were a number of times where I knew in my heart that someone committed a crime, but I couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's where, you know, we need to maintain our core foundations of our democracy and the rule of law, which is to say we have this system for a reason, and that is to make sure that we don't imprison people who didn't actually commit a crime. And I'm not trying to take Donald Trump's side here. I, I just think that we need to be careful about viewing the Manhattan DA's investigation as the 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 effort to hold Donald Trump accountable for all of the wrongs that he has done. There may be specific crimes he's committed, but there are other ways of holding him accountable for other things that he's done. And I think it's important to kind of keep the long view in mind when you're trying to think about Donald Trump. And that's very hard because he evokes so much of an emotional response from so many people. Yeah. No, I understand that. I'm curious to know what you think about the Supreme Court voting decision that came down today. Well, it's not surprising at all, given what happened in Shelby County uh, eight years ago. And so what happened today was that, you know, the three Trumpy Supreme Court justices and the three conservative Supreme Court justices who were already there sided with Georgia's new election laws and said and and also made it harder now to overturn state election laws, right? I mean, ultimately, the yeah, the, it's. I think it's less in some respects about this specific case and much more about the legal standard that the court now established for going forward to allow the Voting Rights Act to be a check on uh, discriminatory voting laws. And the, the real concern is that the language in Justice Alito's opinion recognizes voter fraud as a legitimate concern to enact laws to protect and has some very lenient language about how far states can go that even if there is 
a an incidental, I think was the word he used, a disparate impact, meaning uh, that the results, even if not the intent, the results end up harming minority communities more than majority communities, that that may be okay if you cannot establish that it was intended to do that. That sets up a very high bar because, you know, in this day and age, people are generally smart enough not to say the quiet part out loud other than perhaps Donald Trump and that, you know, they're not going to go out and say, well, we we want to make it impossible for minorities to vote. So that's why we're enacting these laws. Of course, they're not going to say that. And when you see so many Republican legislatures claim that voter fraud is the basis for all these restrictive laws, when the facts just don't bear that out. Voter fraud is not an issue. It's not an issue that has impacted any election as long as anyone can imagine. It may have a couple different individuals here and there, but it's not a widespread problem that needs a large-scale cure. And But the Supreme Court has st- said today that it effectively is. And that's very dangerous, I think, going forward for permissively allowing states to do what they're doing across the country, which is to significantly suppress the minority vote in an indirect way. Do you see a world in which Democrats have any way back from this, though? Well, I I think uh, Merrick Garland anticipated this and the Department of Justice anticipated this with their lawsuit against Georgia, where they're claiming discriminatory intent. And I think one way of doing it will be to be a little bit more aggressive in arguing discriminatory intent and in using circumstantial evidence to show that there is an intent. Circumstantial evidence has been used traditionally to show that there's a results-oriented impact, but there's a way, as a prosecutor, I would do this all the time, there's a way of using circumstantial evidence and inferences to show that this was the intended effect, perhaps partly because there was no other alternative effect that could be cited as a reason for doing it. So it's a higher bar. I don't think it's a bar that is impossible to meet. As an example, you know, the laws that restrict people from providing food and water to those waiting in lines forever, there's no legitimate purpose for that other than just to try to uh, suppress the vote. And so the claims may be less about race and more about the right to vote. And that's one way of of perhaps attacking it. Thank you so much. This was really helpful. It's just soul crushing. (laughs) But we live another day. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. You weren't the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Jesse Cannon. Hi, Molly Drunkfest. So, what's going on? 
He's not even president anymore, but he's still fuck that guy. Oh, man. The former guy. So he's not on Twitter anymore. He's not on Facebook anymore. But he does publish these bizarre statements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what, what do you say now? Which then gets sent around. And it's just one line, four words, four words that can really fuck everyone up. Who shot Ashley Babbitt? Uh, Let me tell you who shot Ashley Babbitt. A police officer who was trying to prevent her from storming the Capitol and killing congressmen and potentially hanging Mike Pence. I can tell you who started this whole incident. Yeah, so in case you're wondering, Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, pro-insurrection, not that we're surprised, but there it is. Whoop, as we say. (laughs) That was a deep cut. That was a deep cut. It's one of my favorite songs. Yes. So my fuck that guy... Since I didn't go last time, I, I'm coming with a two-for-oneer. It is going to be both of the men vying to be the Senate candidate on the GOP side in Ohio. Josh Mandel for running such a shitty campaign like he does every time because he's run for this seat a million fucking times. <laughs> has apparently been <laughs> sleeping one of his, with one of his staffers who's made the campaign a miserable environment to work in, so his staff I'm quit shocked. in mass. I know. I would have just quit in mass if I had to look at his worm-looking uh, face, but that's a different story. I mean... You know, I, I I I mean, I knew his campaign would go down in flames in some way because he's the most unlikable little worm. But like this one is really new heights of assholeish. Well done, sir. Uh, <laughs> but but secondly, coming with the heat and really tearing up the fuck that guy charts these days is one J.D. Vance, author of shittiest book of MAGA era. He it has been discovered by the K file had all these anti-Trump. Well, that is his best quality. He yes. voted for for he voted for my bestie Evan yes, McMullen. That's right. He said he voted for Evan McMullen, but now he has aspirations on his hand. He he needs to ascend to the Senate, and you know, once that happens, and you know you're running on the GOP side, you you gotta suck up to the orange man. So only way to win a Republican primary. <laughs> yeah, that that and the racism. Well done, guy. Well done. Yeah, well done. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.